Thank you for being here this morning. We recently had one of our elders be called to a congregation in New Mexico, and we're happy for him, and sad that he left. And we want to be an encouragement to you this morning to consider what it means to aspire to leadership in the church. And that goes not only for men, but for women and children as well. And so I want to consider these two questions this morning. How can a man who acknowledges the reality of his sinfulness and realizes his need for Jesus to save him from his sin honestly answer to call the, the call to lead God's people blamelessly? And then how can the wives and children and all of us together as the congregation, help the men of our congregation to aspire to lead in that capacity. That's what we're asking this morning. So the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, that's the passage we're looking at. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, they're all used interchangeably, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he know how to care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." So my main focus this morning is to encourage you men to be balanced in your self-assessment as you consider the great challenge that Paul is laying out before us for anyone desiring to be a leader in Christ's church. But first I want to introduce the subject of elders by looking at three main concerns that Paul required of the elders as he first began to establish the early churches, and that's in Acts chapter 14. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. It'll also be up here. When Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lustra and to Iconium and to Antioch to focus on these three items. Strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so I want to note a few things here. We learn in Titus 1 that Paul and Barnabas set in order that which was lacking so that the highest priority on their list 
to establish the church was the appointment of elders in every city. And Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel at every opportunity throughout the city. And it was through the preaching that they were making new disciples. And then Paul and Barnabas set about to secure competent spiritual oversight for those assemblies. But there isn't any indication given in the text about how he went about pointing them, appointing them. And then Paul and Barnabas were confident that God would carry on the work in the elders that they had appointed. They left the spiritual maturing of those elders to God. And so this choosing men for spiritual oversight wasn't left to chance or to circumstance. It isn't just sort of randomly picking out men that are more educated or more wealthy or more intelligent or have a business acumen, but rather men who visibly establish themselves as people of character. So let's examine more closely those three items that he lists and consider those. First, the elders were strengthening or establishing the souls of the disciples. They were rendering them more firm and more committed to being faithful to the gospel. They were setting the souls of the disciples resolutely on the truth of the gospel, encouraging them to trust it with great determination, helping them to remain firm and steadfastly convinced of its truth in every circumstance. Secondly, they were exhorting them to continue in the faith, they were consoling them, they were comforting them, encouraging them in their pursuit of godliness as they continued to be true to their faith and their hope in the Lord, making sure that nothing got in the way of that, including tribulations. And then finally, we see that they were reminding them that entering the kingdom of God comes through many tribulations oppression, ridicule, affliction, being squeezed into narrow trades during your Christian life. This is the way we must enter the kingdom of God, they said. That word must is better translated, it is necessary, it is inevitable, it is a duty to enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. There isn't another way we enter the kingdom of God. This really suggests then that it's by God's divine appointment and his design that we enter the kingdom through persecution and affliction. And so now we see why the disciples must first set out to establish and confirm them in their faith and exhort them and encourage them to pursue their godliness. Because there are many tribulations in life which can distract and, dis and derail us from persevering in the faith. That noun tribulations is throughout the New Testament. It can describe the tribulation at the end time prior to Christ's return in judgment. But can also describe just the general difficulties and troubles in everyday life. You'll remember in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, it's because of the kinds of tribulations we have in everyday life that the seed, the word of God, doesn't take root in the heart of the hearer because tribulations and adversity of all kinds 
choke it out of the heart. And it's because tribulations choke out the word from taking root in the heart of some believers that the focus for these elders was on strengthening their faith and establishing and encouraging them that tribulation was a necessary proponent to entering the kingdom of God. And folks, frankly, that's why we continue to hear the gospel here over and over again, to establish our faith, to encourage us to see the value in continuing to pursue a life of godliness amidst the distractions of tribulation. Paul confirmed this in 2 Timothy 3.12, where he said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So let's, with that foundation, let's look at the passage more clearly, individually looking at the verses. In 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the offer, office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I think some people tend to view these requirements rather rigidly and legalistically but I'm going to view them as attainable characteristics through God's grace this morning. I like how Paul introduces this passage in verse 1 because as difficult as the requirements appear to be at first examination, Paul begins by affirming that desiring to be an elder is a good thing to aspire to. That phrase aspires to is really interesting He's saying if anyone desires to stretch themselves out in order to fully grasp this task, this is a good thing to aspire to. The Greek word for aspire is related to the word for mountain. Let me help you see how that correlates. If you want to lift yourself above the valley, if you aspire to move mountains to accomplish difficult, stupendous, incredible things, this is a good, honorable, and noble work because you are involved in extending God's kingdom here on earth. What a calling. You're involved in caring for the salvation of the souls that the Lord purchased with his own blood. What a challenge that is for us. This is a good work to aspire to, but it's also a difficult work. I like this introduction because following this statement, now he's going to give us a list of things that elders must do and a list of things that elders must not do. And the reason I'm focused on the grace of this calling is because these men have these characteristics that are being recognized among the congregation who are then calling them up to take spiritual oversight of their lives and to serve the community in all humility. This is really about grace. And they're raising them up to take care that everything in the church is done decently and in good order working to see that sound doctrine is taught to the congregation so that godly living can flourish. And so this is the biblical standard and the biblical duty by which elders must allow themselves to be 
assessed in order to be able to lead others in spiritual matters. So the primary qualification is not that they be greatly gifted or well-educated or the sharpest knife in the drawer, but that we have a consistent personal character. That's the very first thing he says, and the very last thing he says, too. You'll notice in verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so the primary emphasis is on the elder's personal life. An elder must be above reproach. Amongst those who are around him in the congregation, and a good reputation with those outside, and then those with whom he is most intimate in his own family. So he says that they must be blameless. He doesn't say they must be sinless, but irreproachable, exemplary. Uh, I'm going to speak for Travis here, but my understanding is that Travis and I were both sort of wondering if we could definitely qualify beyond the first one. I think it was more doubtful in my case, honestly. But this is why I hesitated for over a year to consider becoming an elder at Travis's request before I responded. And I finally said yes, and I had the routine concerns about meeting the spiritual qualifications that every man should have reading these, and then Travis handed me the 20-page application form with questions about the details of my personal life, and I was virtually certain I couldn't meet the qualifications. But listen, folks, I I've learned to discover that doubting your ability to fulfill this calling is an important aspect of answering the call. You should be worried about an elder that looks at this list and goes, oh, I'm there. I think the men who become the best shepherds are the ones who have a deep, profound sense of their sins and their sinful natures and are profoundly thankful and able to demonstrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ in forgiving sins. And in a few minutes, I'm going to explain why that hesitancy and doubting of our capabilities is not only natural, but it's also a good thing and a necessary part of this whole process. So when it says that an overseer must be blameless, it means that there should be no blaring, discerning character flaws in the elder. It does not mean that there are no more areas in their life where they need to grow in grace any longer. It does not mean that. James said, in many things we still offend, and honestly, folks, grace doesn't ever allow us the luxury to believe we no longer have a sin nature. The elder must be morally upright and serve as an example to the congregation. And then Paul spells this out in a little bit more detail in verse 2, and he tells us what this blamelessness looks like. Blameless is the umbrella term for all the other requirements that follow. He says, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He has to be a one-woman kind of a man. He's referring to an exclusive, permanent, loving relationship between one man and one woman. And as we met as elders and have over the time when Andy was with us as well, we read books on shepherding and eldering and what it would look like and what kind of issues were there for us to consider. And I brought to the table at one meeting a PDF by Albert Martin, who happens to be a Presbyterian pastor in Pennsylvania. And he said, regarding being a one-woman man, one thing about being married being married doesn't allow you to deceive yourself about how sinless you are. In other words, you never knew how carnal you were until you got married. The more intimate your human relationships are, the more potential there is for discovering remaining sin. And as long as I'm talking about the marriage relationship, let me say something to the wives. Your calling should be to help your husband to see his sinfulness. Not just to point it out to him, just for the sake of pointing it out, that may be tempting. Because then he'll resent you. But graciously let him know that your real concern for him is his spiritual growth as the leader of your household and his leading in the kingdom of God as well. So this statement doesn't mean also that only those who are married should aspire to this, or only men who have children should be considered or to, should aspire to this position. So the most obvious meaning is the one who's being called to the eldership will need to be an example in the realm of the biblical norm of absolute faithfulness within the marriage bond. And then Paul adds other elements to flesh out more fully what this blamelessness looks like. He mustn't drink immoderately. He must not be given to drunkenness because then he can't be sober and vigilant and self-controlled. We've all seen people who have had too much to drink and frankly, it's an embarrassment. This self-control even includes, I think, being, sound, being of sound mind, moderate in your opinions and in your passions, you know, existing within your senses and your sense of reality, discreet, well-ordered in your life, so that the whole of this interest in one's Christian character is really just fundamental. The general testimony of Scripture is that my usefulness in the service of God is closely tied with my personal character. So that what I am matters more than what I am able to do. This reminds me of a plaque my pastor friend Rob Martini has on his desk. It says, it's better to have a prepared heart than to have a prepared sermon. How I go about preparing my heart and my life is much more important than how well I prepare for my sermon. 
And so this idea of inner consistency in my own life is going to be the one crucial thing that establishes how useful I am as an elder leading in the congregation. And then Paul continues in verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's reasonable. When the text says that he must keep his children submissive, it doesn't mean that somehow he secured the grace of their salvation in their hearts. Quite simply, Paul is saying that our family life ought to be a microcosm of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a reflection of the whole hierarchy. The children of such an elder should obey him because they respect his wisdom and his maturity, his selfless care for his family and his quality of leadership and the example which he is providing ought to encourage them to be obedient. This is a qualification for the eldership because that ought to be how he will be received within the church of God. And so Paul's point is that if he's not living like that within his own home, there's very little likelihood that suddenly he's going to start living like that within the church. Another area of that Paul's concerned with is the human relationships beyond the home. He says we must be hospitable. Literally, we must be a lover of strangers. Literally, lover of strangers. A good host, someone who entertains hospitably. Then he continues, moreover, he must be well thought of with outsiders, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. The elder must be gentle, meaning patient and forbearing with people. Long-tempered and not short-tempered. And that is extended not only to our dealings with people and our attitudes toward them, but also to our words when we speak about them. A couple of verses later in chapter 3, in verse 11, he says, in the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. In our human relationships with those outside the church, we also need to be an example. Because it's very damaging to the church when an elder has the reputation within or outside the church for being short or being difficult and annoyingly insensitive or slow to understand someone's situation where you just can't apply grace to it. And then Paul mentions the sphere of financial affairs. The elder must be crystal clear that his motives in serving God are not for financial gain. We'd be hard-pressed to agree that this is the concern of most television evangelists and preachers. There's a few, but not many. He says, not a lover of money. In other words, an elder's attitudes towards money must be that of sort of being indifferent to it. And that he's learned to live both with it and without it. If you're passing through narrow financial straits as a husband and a family, 
Tighten your belts. Don't live beyond your means. Because nothing declares your relationship to materialism more clearly than how you use your finances. So use them wisely. Use them carefully. And so you'd be asking yourself, are you in serious debt? Do you regularly tithe from God's providence to you? John MacArthur said that when he counsels families, the one thing he asks to see first is their checkbook. And if they don't want to give it to him, that's the end of the counseling. We don't talk much about tithing here, but tithing is an act of worship for us. It illustrates our dependence upon God's providence. And then we take from that giving that God gives us to meet our needs to reach out to pay the salaries of our pastors, to give to missionaries in foreign countries, and to do the upkeep of the facility so we can meet here and worship. There's another phrase that Paul uses in Titus 1.7 that's important that he doesn't use here. He says, the elder must not be greedy for gain. He takes this a step further and pleads for total integrity in all of our financial dealings. Everything we do financially with everyone is above board. We don't try to sneak anything in that's not right. This is where the King James ver uh, Version uses that wonderful phrase, he must not be greedy of filthy lucre. You probably all wonder what that means, right? The idea is they must not be gaining something financially through some kind of shameful behavior. It's vital for us to learn this attitude of absolute integrity with regard to material things. Without such integrity, all of the other teaching and saying that we do about our commitment to Christ is going to lack credibility. Well, there's another concern for elders, and that's their spiritual maturity. In verse 6, he says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I like the Greek word for recent because I'm a horticulturist. And it suggests he shouldn't be newly planted. A plant has to send out its roots deeply before it can begin to produce fruit over a long period of time convincingly. If someone has only just come into the kingdom of God and only recently come to faith in Christ, that person ought to be allowed time to mature, regardless of what other gifting he might have that the church needs. One other area of concern for Paul is considering the teaching ability of elders. We want proven, consistent, well-developed Christian character and proven giftedness to instruct, which comes from being a student of the Word. So the final qualification for the eldership is the teaching ability. It's stated at the end of verse 2, the elder must be able to teach. And the reason this is so important is that one of the chief ways in which leaders will care for God's family is by feeding the flock of God. Peter says to the elders, be shepherds, be pastors, be feeders of 
God's flock that is under your care in 1 Peter. And so the greatest task of the shepherd is to protect the sheep and to lead and guide them to green pastures. Psalm 23. Only as he ensures they have adequate pasture in the word of God can they be nourished and grow and mature. Therefore, every elder, whether his ministry is public teaching or not, ought to be supremely burdened that the flock is being fed. We ought to be concerned to know that the word of God, in whatever way it's being ministered to the congregation, is being explained well as it's taken in and understood and applied to our lives. Now, you know that Andy's been an elder here for a number of years. Andy hasn't ever preached, but no one who knows Andy would doubt that he is a good student of the Word of God. He's a BSF leader. He's been one for years. He actively disciples young men in different congregations here in New Life. He loves to teach children the Bible. It may well be that the elder has an aptitude for explaining and teaching better in that one-on-one -on -one relationship than up front in front of other people. That may be a greater aptitude for him, and we want him to take that responsibility. There's one other qualification for the eldership, which isn't included in the passage in 1 Timothy. We find it kind of tucked away in a comment that James makes in his letter. I'm referring to the verse about those who are sick, where it says in verse 14, is in 514, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. It's easy to miss a much more fundamental truth here, which points to a qualification for elders that's sort of hidden away in this text. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Well, why would the sick person call for the elders? He's not a doctor. Not because they have some divine gift of healing, but because the person who's sick needs to be prayed for. That's James's point. Who are the praying people in the congregation? They're the elders. Be men of prayer. Be women of prayer. Teach your children how to pray well. This is an, another item that's going to distinguish them as people of God. They are going to be praying people. That's perhaps a necessary qualification, and it is certainly a fundamental need within any fellowship of God's people. Well, let me bring a couple of things to you in conclusion. So we see that the standard set in the New Testament for eldership is high. In all this, Paul was making the standard for being an elder normative, though, not something that's unattainable. We're not looking for the specifications of a machine part, Albert Martin said. The issues concerning a biblical view of the eldership need to be seriously considered before someone steps into that leadership role. But we want to encourage you to do that. And so it might be best to simply acknowledge that you aren't quite ready at this stage of your life to be an elder. That's okay. 
This may not be the time for you to aspire to rise above the valley. You might be working on other mountains now to remove them. It may not be the time to desire to accomplish difficult, stupendous, incredible things, as Paul mentioned as the first requisite to being an elder. Yes, there's great responsibility in leading and guiding the church, but we lead as sinful people who have great weaknesses, too. To you men that might still be wrestling with your own responses to our call to eldership, here's where you can find some comfort, I think. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most influential preachers of the last century, and certainly a gifted Bible student, made this honest and maybe shocking statement about his congregation and his own depravity. He said, they see only that which is good in me. They see me only at my best. I shudder when I realize how unworthy I am and how ignorant they are of the dark and hidden recesses of my soul where all that is devilish and hideous reigns supreme, at times breaking through into the surface and causing a turmoil that God and I alone know of. <laughs> wow. How can a great man of God say such a thing? He can say these things only because he comes at this calling to lead because he recognizes there is a distinction to be made between striving and attaining. He understands the difference between willing the good and wholly doing the good. Paul was continuously resolved to press on toward the goal for the calling on high of God in Christ Jesus. That's the desiring part of it, to continue to press on. He said in Philippians 3.12, it's not that I have already been perfected, but that I'm pursuing with the intent to reach that goal. I'm seeking earnestly to acquire it. It's my love to desire to seek that. That's what I'm aspiring to, though all fall short of the glory of God. He said a little bit later in that uh, Philippians passage, I'm forgetting the things behind me and stretching out and straining for the things in front of me. Folks, we're not trying to be more authentic in our spiritual assessment than the Apostle Paul's own assessment of his spiritual state. In the New Testament, Paul wrote, I am the chief of sinners. He wrote in Romans chapter 7, on the one hand, I am unspiritual, sold into slavery to sin. For I don't understand what I'm doing. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I don't want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. And yet on the other hand, he writes elsewhere, imitate me just as i imitate jesus christ in second timothy 1 3 he writes i thank god whom i serve with a clear and transparent conscience 
It's not the measure of Paul's accomplishments in mastering the list here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 that allows him to say, I serve God with a clear and transparent conscience. But the setting of his will to desire to do the will of God more than any other desire. To aspire to do his will that allows him to say he serves with a clear and transparent conscience. His conscience is clear because he knows that is his sincerest desire. Folks, that's how Martin Lloyd-Jones can confess that truth to his congregation. Because the reality is that we're all desperate and undeserving sinners, elders included. And acknowledging that we aspire to serve God is a critical component to correctly assessing how we can meet Paul's requirement to be blameless, irreproachable elders. And as we're asking you men to weigh out the personal cost of this great calling, to serve God in this capacity, and take on the incredible challenges of leading and nurturing and comforting and establishing and feeding God's people, Remember this, men of God are those who desire to be authentic all the time, but are still uncovering areas in their lives where they are weak and sinful. That's the reality of it. So seek God's kingdom. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Fight the good fight of faith. Go after it earnestly. Aspire to it. And then, alongside with that, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and seeking to correct it, growing in grace all the while. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us, even though you make requirements of us to be obedient. Father, I ask that our hearts might be in tune to the words that were spoken this morning that you have encouraged us with that we would be a people who want to strengthen each other and, and comfort each other and exhort each other on to aspire to great things in your kingdom. Father, as we continue to worship and we spend time together after this service, I pray a rich blessing on all of us as we come together again. Be with us in our speech and in our hearts to enable us to be the kind of people you want us to be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.